I'm always excited when I hear about a new thing happening in New York. I think it's great. It's amazing. I just think there's so much opportunity always, you know, and that's the thing. Like we, we are in a community of abundance. Like there's so much room in the market for a new voice and for new ideas and for a new curatorial vision. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. As someone who's lived in New York for 25 years now, I sometimes take its magic for granted. The architecture, the museums, the galleries, the shops, the bagels. But most of all, I'm positively spoiled when it comes to all of the great design around me. On this special episode brought to you by Anne Sachs, which just opened a palatial slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, I chat with some of my favorite Gothamites and a few new friends to take the city's temperature, as it were, on all things design. We'll speak with a pair of real estate agents who are taking the luxury game to a whole new level, a design dealer and gallerist who has changed the culture with his keen eye, inventive spaces, and groundbreaking talents, and a design world connector whose latest book is encouraging a new generation of antiquarian aficionados. But first, I check in with a dear friend of mine, Alexandra Cunningham Cameron, curator of contemporary design at New York's Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. A Miami native, she was the former creative director of the collectible design fair, Design Miami, that takes place each year during Art Basel Miami Beach. Her recent show, a retrospective on the late fashion designer Willie Smith, was impacted by the pandemic lockdown but its digital initiatives gave the small show an outsized impact. I caught up with Alexandra from her apartment, where I got her take on the state of design in the city, a list of her favorite galleries, and most importantly, where to get the best burger. And, you know, uh, as as a basic New Yorker question, um, (laughs) uh, what is life like uh, as a curator and mom of two? I mean, it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) how is that even possible that's what i ask you um i i I do try to sleep um you know you you do what you can i i i get asked a lot um about our family's decision to sort of stay in new york we live on broadway (laughs) you know we live in a really chaotic part of the of the city um and and i found that the benefits that my kids get from, you know, stepping out the door and, you know, being in a whirlwind of people and sense and architecture and, you know, objects is is something that has like totally shaped their brain in a way that um, my brain was not shaped sort of hanging out in a backyard in, in South Florida. Um, and, and I, it can be intense, but it's also an incredible place to be a parent because you can go to a park and immediately like be with other parents and your kid can meet new people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a way of life that, um, involves like constant exposure, 
Um, but I, I, don't, I appreciate that. And I can't imagine raising them anywhere else. I've, I've tried to imagine it. Um, <laughs> nope. And Seth probably thinks about it all the time. You know, he's, he's a, a bit more interested in, in kind of like a, you know, a quiet space in nature. Um, but I don't know, you know, you juggle. And what is that shift like when you kind of came to New York and, and kind of worked here for the first time in terms of like, you know, design and the design sort of scene and how the attitude it might be different here than in Miami, which, of course, I'm sure is quite different. Yeah. I, well, it's interesting. I mean, New York has always been my city. I remember coming here when I was four on a family trip and it was in the winter. I don't know why, you know, people from the tropics would decide. <laughs> maybe they were, maybe my parents were trying to expose me to snow, but I was horrified by the weather, you know, like trying to tear off all of these layers, but was like, you know, enraptured by the city. I was like, what is this place? Um, and, you know, since then, I've always thought about how to get back to New York. And I still, you know, I went to school here for a little bit. I've been back and forth. Um, I was living in Miami for a while and coming up here a few times a month. I've been back here now for about 10 years. And I still, like when my plane touches down or I cross the border or bridge into Manhattan, I still feel that thrill. Um, and yeah, I think like at first glance, you know, maybe Miami and New York um, seem like polar opposites, but there, I think there are a lot of similarities to the cities. You know, they're both constantly in motion. People go to New York and to Miami to to reinvent themselves, to escape, to build a new community. Um, and I think I, I just prefer to do that in a in a trench coat rather than a, a bathing suit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but can you tell listeners, you know, how you found yourself at, at the Cooper Hewitt? Yes. Um, well, you know, Dan, that I've taken what would be considered a pretty untraditional uh, path to the museum. Um, my background is that I, I studied literature and then decided that before I sort of went down the road of finding a small liberal arts college in the middle of the country to get my PhD in and, and you know, become a pre professor forever, that I would try to work in fields that I had always loved, admired, had a passion for, but maybe, um, you know, hadn't understood that I could study in school or pursue. And I'd always loved architecture and design. And right around that time, the Design Miami Fair was starting in Miami. And so a friend introduced me to the fair. I was actually living in the Miami Design District at the time um, where the fair's offices were based. And um, and I, I, I begged Design Miami to hire me, even though I had no professional experience um, or academic background in design. Uh, and it took a while, actually. It wasn't, <laughs> you know, my, my charms were resisted uh, for about six months. Um, and, and finally, I broke, I broke Ambra down, who was the director of the fair at the time and um and started out as as an assistant and had almost every job imaginable <laughs> at the fair um for about 12 12 years and 
after that, I started doing some independent curating at, at smaller museums around the country that didn't have design departments. Um, I was an editor in chief of an independent arts journal, the Miami Rail. Um, I was a consultant for a variety of companies who are interested in um, uh, working with designers. I worked on public art uh, in the design district in particular and other places. Um, and then I, I realized, you know, that museums have always been um, the places where I've been most, most transformed throughout my life. Um, for better or for worse, I'm I'm a, a culture girl, not not a nature girl. You know, I like to stand in a building and and wonder at something um, transcendent made by by human hands. Um, read the words someone else wrote, and um, and that sort of moment of just kind of understanding where I wanted to be and where I felt comfortable sort of led me to to pursue um, a job in a museum. Uh, even though I had always said I would never work in a museum because I thought they moved too slowly. <laughs> and uh, and your partner is also a, a an, he's an artist and a museum professional as well. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. he's the director of the Children's Museum of the Arts. Okay, um, and an artist. He has a studio practice. And if you had to give you know shifting gears a little bit to the, to New York in general, if you had to get a, a letter grade today in terms of the contemporary design scene to New York, what would you say? I love this question. Um, <laughs> I knew you, you would. Know, this is a progressive city in New York. We, we don't give letter grades. <laughs> that's Maybe that's a good answer. It's uh, We're so progressive, we don't even give letter grades. I know. It's just maybe the food industry, right? Like is it pass-fail? Is, um, is, is New York passing? You know, I think that um, New York has definitely struggled to find like a marketable design identity, mm. um, which has made it difficult to sort of take off like Milan, right? And and to gather people from around the world in celebration of design culture. Um, but that's because our scene is so diverse. Um, and complex and expansive, um, you know, I think that inability to sort of, you know, brand New York's design scene, which is one of the ways that I, people really connect with it or understand it or process it is also is also a strength. You know, I was at the Brooklyn Navy Yard last week for some meetings and, you know, just in this like one site I saw, you know, the transportation of some Italian radical furniture from the late 60s and, um, you know, a studio experimenting with mycelium bricks and, you know, parked in the yard was a tractor running on ammonia, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, and I, I, I think New York can do a better job at expressing, you know, the sort of like inward richness that someone like me gets to see. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I think that the various design events around the city are, are beginning to do a better job of that. And a lot of that I think is also because like the, the scene has expanded. It's become more collaborative. Um, you know, uh, you, 
you've probably noticed that, you know, Design Week has really now begun to overlap with the art fairs, you know, just like Fashion Week has begun to overlap with the art fairs um, in the fall. And I, everyone complains about, you know, what that does to like restaurant renovation, uh, reservations and event venues and hotel prices and everything. But I, I think it's it's an indication of like more crossover, um, which leads to exposure and discovery and understanding. And and design has a lot of work to do. I think to to look outward and to invite people in. And I'm I'm hopeful that um, this sort of more cross disciplinary exploration and collaboration might might help open it up a bit more. And what kind of is there? A, are there a couple of new galleries that you could recommend people go to? That maybe uh, one or two that are kind of new, younger galleries. I can think of a few, but I'd love to hear yours. Um, yeah, I think uh, Superhouse downtown is an exciting new gallery. Um, Tiwa Select. Yeah, if Superhouse is sort of like in a kind of like a large glass vitrine in Chinatown in kind of like an indoor mall slash office situation where like everyone rents little kind of glass um, office spaces. It's kind of like a public we work, but they're all independent little shops and things, but they just have like a glass vitrine where they just create. Mm -hmm. There's no one inside. It's just a glass box where things on display. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also Jacqueline Sullivan Gallery, um, Emma Scully. Uh, and apologies, we skipped over Tiwa Select, oh, right? Oh, we, we, we skipped over Alex, but Tiwa. And then, you know, I mean, to to see the sort of young energy around um, more established galleries, you know, like Suzanne Demish and Aring Company and Friedman Benda, Carpenter's Workshop. Um Hostler Burroughs, Christina Grahalis, Lee Mandel opened a design gallery, which is exciting. Um, young had at a, heart. We, we've had yes, we've had um, one of his one of his uh, artists shown uh, um, Azizi Poposwa on on the program. She's incredible. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, I'm a big fan. And you know, uh, I, my last question, as we like to go out for burgers for those listening that might be coming into New York uh, to visit, what were your favorite spots for for amazing burgers in the city where two design aficionados can gossip about um, all the things? It's it's been all about Superiority Burger for me okay. lately. Where is that? Oh, it's in the East Village, in the former Odessa, which oh. is a design. Uh, Odessa, which is a diner that used to be across from my old apartment um, and closed a few years ago, but it's vegan. They're vegan burgers. Don't oh. be disappointed, Dan. Oh, I know. Wow, there wow. are martinis. There are martinis. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And the menu changes constantly. Um, the desserts are the best in the city. Uh, yeah. So we, okay. we have to go. I think you won me over with desserts and <laughs> desserts and martinis. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Ann Sachs. Ann Sachs' latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs. 
The product designers at Ansax have traveled the world to source a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, each with their own unique and dramatic veining and movement to create that organic, elegant feel in interiors. The company has just opened its newest lab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. The inspirational new flagship location in Long Island City is a combination showroom and slab gallery, showcasing the full assortment of tile and slab collections, as well as in-stock vanities, lighting, and plumbing fixtures. For more information about any Ansax tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.ansax.com. They say that in New York, real estate is a blood sport. And if that's true, my next two guests are the reigning gladiatorial champions of it all. Brothers Orinental Alexander are rock star real estate agents and some of the brains behind Official, a global firm launched in 2022 that focuses exclusively on the so-called pinnacle segments of the market. That is palatial apartments and townhouses that contain all of that collectible art and design in the first place. In a city that's constantly changing, I wanted to ask them what neighborhoods are on the move, how they think the city is adapting post-COVID, and what kinds of amenities their grand tourist listening set are demanding in the new New York. And uh, why don't you guys tell me a little bit about um, Official and how you guys sort of got started, because I know you guys had a, uh, a long career elsewhere, and then you guys struck out on your own recently. So tell me a little bit about Official and, and what it is. Yeah, so Tall and I uh, have been working together now for over 12, 13 years, and we spent most of our career at Douglas Elliman, which was considered the sort of largest residential brokerage in the country. And we managed to rise in the ranks at that company, uh, eventually getting to being the number one team in the country, also both for the company and just in general. And we did that for three consecutive years. Um, at that point, we realized that the company wasn't serving our needs or our clients' needs, and that there was ultimately a need for a company that just focused on the pinnacle segment of the market, which we found ourselves dealing with mostly um, in, in our core markets of New York, Miami. So, we realized that we are very good at what we do, um, but we needed operators to create a company that can serve our clients. And Oren, do you think that there's, um, you know, what would you say about is the amenity now that you get asked maybe about a lot more? I think today um, so many people are focused on wellness more than ever. If fitness was the last trend uh, in amenities, today it's wellness, it's recovery. We've seen that come true in, in many sort of studios opening up. I, I was just visiting in Ibiza, staying at the Six Senses Hotel, where not only is the hotel flag a wellness brand, ultimately, starting just with spas, but to add to that, they even had a concept called the Rose Bar which was um, a bit of a longevity clinic, um, but a place that people, guests, come to to take you know, IV drips, sit in hyperbaric chambers, 
do cryo, red light therapy, ice baths. Oh, pretty advanced stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it's it used to be something that mostly, I guess, athletes would use. Um, you know, even pro surfers like Laird Hamilton kind of made this stuff famous. But now the everyday person, whether or not they're actually, you know, using fitness, they're, they're using wellness. So that's something that we're seeing in, in most of our new developments. And then F&B is a huge driver today. People want to be able to have um, a, you know, five-star meal uh, available in the residence without having to have a chef on the payroll. So uh, most projects that we're working on today um, have a combination uh, of those two elements. And Tal, how would you describe the kind of the niche that you saw, the need that you saw that needed to be filled for you guys to start official? Like what was kind of missing in the greater, wider, wider world of, of sort of luxury real estate? Yeah, I think um, three years, number one, at Douglas Element, we were sort of thinking, you know, we needed a brand behind us that really resonated with our clients, that they felt really focused ultimately on the 1% of the market, as we like to call it, right? The top end um, and build a business around that. So really just focusing on that space. Who are these buyers? Where are they coming from? Um, and really tailoring a company to provide a service that really no other brokerage is doing. Uh, things like, you know, a lot of our clients have multiple properties in the markets we operate in. Um, showing them sort of where the market is for their properties on a quarterly basis, right? Where are the transactions happening? Um, their neighbors, so things like that, uh, implementing into our business. So we just felt it was something ultimately that, that was the next step for us, like a natural evolution, um, and just looking really for that next challenge. And Tal, tell me a little bit about um, what is a sort of a trophy address today in New York City, like how has that has that really sort of changed? Uh, you know, in terms of like what that let's talk. You know, the any ten million and up kind of crowd. Um, what what is the sort of prestige address now that you think is is sort of capturing people's attention? Yeah, so I would say since COVID and everything that transpired, sort of in twenty twenty, um, uptown in general became very in demand and hot, uh, specifically for families. I think a lot of that has to do with security and safety. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with cleanliness. Um, uptown just tends to be cleaned a lot more regularly uh, than certain neighborhoods in downtown. Um, I think also a lot of buyers today have sort of decided which buildings are these trophy addresses. Uh, and as much as a buyer, when we start working with them, their criteria is based on location and sort of bedroom count, addresses play a very important role in ultimately where they're willing to live and invest, you know, real dollars in. Uh, certain buildings uptown that have really solidified themselves as the premier addresses are buildings like 220 Central Park South, where today, you know, it's standard if you're going to buy into that building, anything that's a three-bedroom or larger, it's going to cost you around 10 plus thousand a square foot. Some of them can go up to as much as 19,000 a foot. Um, buildings like we're in right now, 432 Park Avenue, another great address. Um, and a lot of these buildings that I just mentioned, besides the actual community of people that live there, and that's what a lot of buyers want to know, who are their neighbors? Are, there pe are they people that they're going to socialize with, 
you know, associate with um, make a big difference ultimately in the decision if they're willing to buy in that building. But a lot of it also is the lifestyle. You know, the two buildings I just mentioned, they have private restaurants that are run by world-class chefs. They provide in-room dining, daily breakfast, lunch, dinner in on the terraces outside, beautiful dining rooms, gym, spa, you name it. There's nothing that these buildings won't figure out for you. It's almost like living in a seven-star hotel. Um, but the Upper East Side is just a neighborhood in general that I think because, again, the safety, security, the fact that a lot of families like to be close to the park, it's probably one of the more in-demand neighborhoods. Uh, and then when you think downtown, it's buildings like 150 Charles, the Greenwich Lane. Um, they just sold two penthouses there within the last month. One went for 11500 a foot, the other one for 8500 a foot. So, again, I think that buyers have proven they're willing to pay up for these particular buildings in these neighborhoods. And can I ask where you guys are living in the city right now or like where what neighborhoods you guys uh, you live in? Yeah. So right now we live in uh, Midtown at 432 Park Avenue. Uh, we've been here for five years. We've moved around the city a lot over the last 10 years. We thought that was sort of advantageous for us to live in many different neighborhoods and experience it from being a resident. Uh, and it would help us ult- like perfect our game when we're touring clients around the city and know a neighborhood from actually having lived it and breathed it. So we've lived in, I think, 12 years of being here in probably eight, nine different neighborhoods. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of a prevailing wisdom that, you know, in the past couple of years, you know, people aren't moving to New York. They're moving from New York. But from what you guys have been telling me, it seems like the market is just completely you know, uh, uh, sewn up in many ways. There isn't a lot out there. It's not like there's a lot of, you know, uh, vacant uh, apartments even at the super high end. Um, So what do you think is going on? Are people really, was that just kind of like post-pandemic naysayerism about New York? Or are we just feeling the effects of not having like a a lot of construction stopping during that time of the pandemic? Or like, you know, are people, you know, coming back? Is that that kind of crowd, that that sort of super high end crowd? Are they really returning to New York? Uh, like, what's your take on on this sort of like, you know, prevailing chit chat out there about, you know, oh, people are now they've left New York. They're going to Florida. They're going to, you know, L.A. or where whatever. So let me try to give you sort of a timeline of like what's happened here in the last three years. Um, and, you know, we see it from a unique lens because we are in so many of these markets where like a lot of our clients own homes, multiple homes in. Um, so we see it both ways. We see it. They're leaving. We see it. They're coming. Uh, 2020, March, 2020, uh, New York city basically shuts down. Um, and the real estate market here for six months completely shuts down. Showings were not allowed. Anything that was happening was basically happening underground. Um, the market's never be- seen that. Now that's New York. Turn to South Florida, our phones are ringing off the hooks. A lot of our clients from New York are calling us. People are scrambling to buy real estate, to rent real estate. People you know, are looking for shelter down there because Miami, South Florida, still sunshine, things were operating, things were open. You're able to live somewhat of a normal life in that time. Right around sort of after summer, 
uh, South Florida market really took off. And so many of these other markets, places like Austin and Texas, you know, places that were open ultimately, right, were taking off where people could seek shelter and live somewhat of, again, a normal life. New York was late to the party. Uh, New York didn't start to really take off until about March, April 2021. Um, the dust kind of settled. I think New York, anytime people feel like they can buy it on a discount, it starts to look very appealing. If you look at New York and sort of the last few really uh, soft markets that we've seen were really 9-11. There was like a timeline. I wasn't around then, but I've, I've heard stories that lasted for around six, seven months. You had the 2008 financial crisis. Same thing kind of lasted six, seven months. And then you had, you know, Hurricane Sandy, I think it was, with all the floods on the west side. And I think that lasted like three or four months. And every single one of those time periods, the market bounced back in, in a much bigger way than even prior to those occurrences. Um, so you had 2021 in New York and New York market really started to take off in March, April. And that, that, and I said that was for many a record year. And then that led us to 2022 where it was very strong ultimately until the end of Q1. And then when equities started to shift and interest rates you know, the Fed started to speak about how they're going to start to rise interest rates to deal with inflation. The market started to settle a little bit, but because 2021 was such a strong year, there was still very little inventory for buyers in the marketplace. And it just became somewhat of a neutral level playing field for both buyers and sellers versus 21, where it was a complete seller's market. So now we're dealing with, you know, similar tendencies that we saw, in, you know, Q2, 3, and 4, and 22 to start 23. Um, but the market's really been picking up as, you know, the American economy and equities have been running. So many of the clientele here in New York City are coming from the financial sector. So I think New York, anytime there's something going on in the sense of if it's on a discount, we're going to start to see it run up because then buyers want to get in. And I think on the flip side, when it's really peaking, like we saw in 21, then, you know, maybe people are on the sidelines and want to wait it out a little bit. But I think, you know, the top end of the market, which is, you know, really a sector that we're most active in, I, I would say that that market is rarely on, at a discount. You know, if anything, when things aren't going well in the environment, you can buy things at a fair price. You know, when things are peaking, sellers are expecting basically their their number to get a deal done. My next guest is someone I've known for a long time, and you might even say is the godfather of American emerging design, David Alhadef of The Future Perfect. What started as a little shop in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, today has become a design gallery powerhouse with locations in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, where he took over the 1916 Goldwyn House in Hollywood Hills. This combination of gallery and home you could walk into by appointment is a bit of a signature of his, after his townhouse in New York's West Village, designed by Pritzker Prize-winning architect and former guest of this very podcast, David Chipperfield. I wanted to take a little trip down memory lane with David about the gallery and its phenomenal growth, how he's nurtured dozens of talents, both foreign and domestic, and how the design scene in our beloved New York just keeps growing and growing. Tell me about... Um, the very beginnings of the future perfect, like 1.0 back in the day, which I wow. am having a hard time even remembering, but 
give me the sort of the 60 second uh, history lesson of, of how it all started. Oh my gosh. Okay, great. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely where we met. So it certainly has grown since then, although I wouldn't say enormous, I, uh, but, but we're, we are a nice small business at this point and that feels really good to me. Um, so we started in 2003 in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and it was me like in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And at the time, like if we want to paint the picture, no high rises, like the word luxury was not emblazoned on any building in Williamsburg. It was really an artist's community. And what I loved about Williamsburg was it was the back door to like all of the makers in in our design community, you know? So amazing people that we still work with today, like Jason Miller and Lindsay Adelman were working in Brooklyn basically at the back door of what became the future perfect which was north six and um barry i can't even remember <laughs> wow i don't even think i knew you uh before noho actually now that i can oh, really? think about it yeah oh gosh so 1.0 we didn't even meet until like 1.5 yeah um so yeah. you were in williamsburg for a couple of years and then i guess when did the shift to noho happen well you know williamsburg was amazing and we were there starting in 2003 in 2008 there was the big kind of economic crash and it redefined our business to a large extent. And I, um, I had the opportunity with real estate prices being at the bit of a low to, um, to take advantage of getting a space in, um, in NoHo on Great Jones. And that was when we moved out there. And that was like when you, you were dealing with different sort of makers, but also with brands at the time. And I remember there was like a little shop in the back, which was more like more retail, if you will. Yeah. And yeah. and so what was that mix like, you know, in Brooklyn and then in NoHo for, for that sort of 1.0, 2.0? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because the 1.0 really started as a furniture gallery, you know, and we became known for like this thing that became known as Brooklyn Design you know, and we championed that. I mean, we were working with a, not not entirely an American program, but as I said, we were at the back door of these amazing makers. So we were working with a lot of those people and it had a real gallery feel to it at first, right? Mm -hmm. Then the recession happened in 2008. This was a big thing, you know, to stay in I business. <laughs> we developed an accessories program, you know? And so I think when we first moved to Manhattan in 2009, that was still like, a lifeline for the brand to remain in business, you know, and part of moving to Manhattan, the goal was to return to that ethos of being more of a design gallery. You know, I realized I didn't want to have a national mall store. Like I remembered thinking like I could either like go get some investors and try and turn this into a mall concept. And it just didn't sound like what I wanted to do. I was much more passionate about the work that was being created by the studio makers and artists that I had developed relationship with. Mm -hmm. So that was the goal with Manhattan. And we slowly moved our way back to that. And I think part of the move there, one of the biggest things was we became the um, American uh, distributor for Pete Hynique mm -hmm. and all of his studio created work. And that really transitioned us back into showing a typology of work that was bigger, that was artist made, that had a really amazing presence to it. And we began selling that work really well. And then, and, of course, evolves everything else. And then there was like another big shift, which uh, you'll have to kind of take me through what spurred this is when you kind of moved into the sort of the townhouse um, in Greenwich Village, which I kind of feel like you were on the very the tippy tip of the spear of this trend. And now everyone's got a private apartment in a, 
in a in a in a brownstone in a high rise in a new luxury building but you guys were like the first tell me about that amazing space and you're still there now in yeah, new york we are. and yeah. it's a beautiful space tell me about tell me about the space and also tell me about how why you decided to to, to do that Fantastic. I'll take you backwards first, and I'll try to be pretty quick. So this concept was born from our desire to have a space in Los Angeles. And I had spent a lot of time navigating the Los Angeles retail world and could not figure it out. You know, I have a space in New York. I understand that. I know how commercial real estate works. People walk by your store. They walk in, they buy things, that sort of vibe, you know, mm. like San Francisco, same story. It's really, it's, it's a city that I understand. I could not make sense out of LA and long story short, you know, I thought to myself, maybe I'll just put the, the gallery in a house. I'll live there too. That'll be great for me. I get a chance to kind of explore Los Angeles a bit. This answered for me something that I had been grappling with, which is just the usefulness of a ground floor retail space in the face of um, online shopping. Mm. You know, a lot of our clients were doing a lot more showrooming of our work in in our in our website, you know, and then calling our team and being like, I'll take this, I'll take that. So I was starting to question that. I think that's still a major question for people is what is, what is the thing I'm offering in the ground floor to be of interest to someone to have them come in? So this turned out to be a very, a very successful concept. I mean, a lot of brands came, I should say it was 2017. At this point, LA is like an arts community, you know, mm. but at that time it was still like touch and go. I mean, brands opened in LA and they closed in LA as quickly as they opened. You know, a lot of luxury brands come to LA to die. Mm. You know, it's a weird market, but we were received like incredibly well with this concept. And it just, it afforded us so many unique opportunities, which we can get into if we have time. But then what I figured was it's doing so well in LA. It's so cool. Maybe I should look for a space in New York. And I found this incredible townhouse in the West Village designed by David Chipperfield. It's one of, I think, only two residential spaces that he's designed ever or in New York. I mean, it's a really, really rare space. It has this incredible sculpture of a staircase designed by him. It was designed for a very prominent finance uh, family you know, and um, we took custodianship of that. And it's just been an unbelievable transition for our brand. I mean, showing work in that context and against the backdrop of this like magnificent sculptural staircase and in that beautiful space, it's transformative to our program. It's mm. incredible. And, you know, if you had to describe just the future perfect in, in general to a stranger, um, you know, how would you describe it today? Yeah. I mean, the future perfect is a champion of contemporary design, you know, and I still have just such a passion for the emerging talent, you know, and, and at this point, I don't think we can say we're an emerging design gallery. A lot of the artists that we represent are very, very well established, but my heart still sings when I meet and get a chance to work with someone who's just completely undiscovered, you know? And, you know, who is, which artist has been with you the most, the longest? Jason Miller and Lindsay Adelman are probably the longest standing, um, you know, the OGs, but like, the OGs yeah, of uh, the OGs. New, York, New York lighting. I mean, <laughs> so, so OG, right. And like, but like, there's a lot of others too, like Carl Zahn for as long as he's been working, he's been working with us. Um, he's just not as old as Lindsay and Jason and I. <laughs> 
Okay, fair you know? enough. So there's there's a lot of people that we have a long-standing relationship with, but at this point, it's more indicative of their age, how long <laughs> we've been working with them. But when we develop relationships with these artists, we hang on to them. Like, they're, they're family. They're part of our, our crew, our world, you know? And do you think the limited edition kind of era of design has kind of faded a little bit or kind of gone away in the, in the sense of it doesn't seem to be you know, as cherished or as important as it used to be. I think it's, or is that just me from the outside looking in? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me on the inside, it still feels really important. Um, I have a personal take on this, which is that I respect um, additioning work, but I always want to understand why the artist is choosing to addition the work. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not a huge fan. I understand that sometimes it's necessary, you know, but I'm not a huge fan of, um, arbitrary decision of eight for eight's sake right you know it, it occurs to me so i'm always interested in like oh well it's a ceramic piece and my mold degrades i'm looking for a certain precision out of the mold and i can only get 12 mm. that i feel comfortable with for me that that's like yeah that's really important that's valuable you know and and i think also for a lot of artists they don't just want to like reproduce the same thing over and over again mm. you know they kind of want a chance to refresh to, to share new ideas to express something new especially if they're working in their studio and that's what they're doing all day and when it comes to you know back to new york um how would you describe this the design culture in new york now than it was maybe back in the williamsburg days oh i mean it's it's kind of totally the same and totally different um, I think you'd probably agree. Like, I think, you know, we've, we've both been around for a minute. Um, it's still a wonderful, closely connected, rich community of studio makers and artists and artisans living and working in New York, you know, um, I'm not sure that like Brooklyn has the same relevance that it used to, you know, in such a concentrated way. I think makers now are dispersed. Upstate is so much more relevant. You know, Philly, I think, is part of the New York community to some extent, you <laughs> sure, know, yeah. at this point. Um, I think I think the extension, the allowance for people, this is not just a COVID thing, but I think COVID really amplified this. But people don't need to like work in New York to be a part of the New York community. So I think we see a lot more of that now you know but it is still a very tightly connected group of makers artists galleries that are closely interlinked interlinked you know and, and when it comes to uh you know anyone listening where they are a designer or they're opening up they want to open up a design business maybe it's a gallery maybe it's a studio um really anything you know what which kind of advice would you give them for making it in New York in design? Well, I just think there's so much opportunity always, you know, and that's the thing. Like we, we are in a community of abundance, you know, and um, we don't, we don't live in a community of scarcity at all. Like there's so much room in the market for a new voice and for new ideas and for a new curatorial vision, you know? So I, I'm always excited when I hear about, a new thing, you know, um, happening in New York, in the country in general. I think it's great. It's amazing. It's, it's exciting for the clients. Um, it's, it's great. You know, this, this idea that exists in other businesses of like market share, 
you know, which is a very traditional way of thinking about your business. Coca-Cola has a 52%, you know, Pepsi has 36% and then other, you know, RC Cola. I, that's not how our business works. You know, it, it, it's like there's pieces from, there's a real eclecticism in the way that people consume design. And it's the way people consume for their wardrobe as well. We don't singularly shop at a department store. You know, we buy from all over. We buy different designers. We buy some Zara. We buy some high-end fashion. We buy same thing in, in design, you know? So I think it's exciting. I think it continues to be an exciting time. I think you have to have clarity in your curatorial vision mm. to be successful. And if that resonates, then bravo, like, you know, because you see that happening now on like East Broadway and up in buildings in the Flatiron. I mean, it just doesn't, it, there's no like, oh damn, too bad you're not in Soho. Right. But when we started, that was, I mean, people were like, they'd come into our space or they would call us and say, hey, can you can you do something in Soho so that we can see what you're doing? And I'd be like, you could come visit us in Brooklyn. It's one stop on the, on the L train. Like, yeah, yeah, I just don't go to Brooklyn. Yeah, that doesn't happen. And, you know, outside of your own gallery in the design scene, whether maybe it's a shop or a location or or even another a dealer or or just a showroom from a particular brand, is there if you had to give me sort of like three places that, you know, someone visiting should go and 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 take a visit to kind of understand design culture in in New York, where should they go? Or where wow. should they look around? New York has really changed, you know. So I'm going to give you a few more than three. Okay. You know, you great. Can like edit as you will. But I think you're like, you're, you're like, you're like old school, like design galleries is like, you know, Carpenters, Arn Company, Friedman Benda, um, you know, Hostler Burroughs. Um, I think, you know, those, those are amazing spaces. They're beautiful. Um, and um, I think there's a whole new scene that's cropping up. So I think that like what's happening with like super studio down on East Broadway or with like Tiwa select, you know, I think those are awesome. Like I would definitely go check those out, you know, for inspiration. So, you know, there's also like for, for historical work, there's like even like Liz O'Brien and Moggin, you know, that I wouldn't like, I'd be like, yeah, you got to go there too. You know, amazing spaces. So New York is so chock-a-block like you could spend not days, weeks in New York just trying to get a sense of the design slash art scene that's happening. So is it like, are we, have we moved? Is it weird to, to say that we maybe the era of craft is over, but we're in the era of craftsmanship instead? I, th I think we might still be in that era of craft. Really? You know, look at, okay. look at the, well, I, I always think I ceramics. Yeah. Ceramics are like a huge part of our program. They seem to be a huge part of everybody's program. Like that, that includes art galleries, design galleries, vintage shops, you know, like, I mean, this is not, this is not just us, you know? So ceramics being, I think of ceramics as craft, like they, they are an incredible, um, it's an incredible medium by which an artist can express their vision. So they are art, right? Mm -hmm. But how you learn how to create ceramics is you're learning a craft, you know, and, and that to me feels like the relevance of that is it's not the, it's not like the craft show that my mom used to take me to back in Seattle at the Bellevue Square. You know, that's not the kind of craft we're talking about now, but we're talking about craft masters in their craft, you know, a master ceramicist like an Eric Reinstead, Ronaldo Sanguino, others who do this, you know, mm -hmm. Floris Wubin, 
you know, these, this is our program, you know, but they're Lena Similu. I mean, there are just, we work with so many Barry Zipperstein. I mean, we work with so many of these people and there's, um, they continue to get better, you know, which is very much this Japanese idea of like, of like, you might think you're good now at like 27, you know, and you might actually have a career, but you're not a master until you're like 90, you know, so keep going, keep working. If you had to give a letter grade to the design scene in New York at the moment, what letter grade would you give New York? This is hard for me to answer because I do split my time. So um, I'm spending a lot more time in LA. I actually feel like I could give you more of a letter grade for LA than I can for New York right now. You okay. know, it's kind of been since pandemic. Yeah. If I'm being really honest with you, I mean, I still go back and forth New York. I still have a home in New York. I still am in New York, but I am not in New York enough to give you that letter grade of what what's, it is right what's now. What's the LA letter grade? I feel like LA is really a, like, especially in the ceramics and the art side of this whole thing. It is at like a B plus you know <laughs> you said that with such passion uh, but i totally I, understand. I totally i know what you mean i mean well it was a d okay you know like yeah, it just yeah. was i mean well la has been transformed not only by the pandemic and by so many people moving out here by but by so many uh businesses also opening here so many art galleries being here the newest of which is david zwerner which i think paints a picture that says that you know it's not just hauser and worth out here right now like like uh what's it what's that one called um pace yeah pace yeah. pace gallery just, yeah, just yeah. opened up oh, here yeah, okay, yeah. um i mean it's like every day you, yeah. you're, you're looking at the new galleries that have opened and you're like oh my god seriously they open I mean, spruce and moggers is here there's so many kind of of these amazing galleries that have opened here and i think for a long time artists working here artists the art scene here has like an a plus plus like we all i think we all know that like most of the major american art talents or many, I'm not going to say most, many of the major American art talents are living and working in Los Angeles. You know, that's been going on for a long time. But I think the design scene is following suit with that. And I think there's so much happening out here. It feels rich with talent and diversity, which is incredible. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Ann Sachs. Ann Sachs' latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs. The product designers at Ann Sachs have traveled the world to source a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, each with their own unique and dramatic veining and movement to create that organic, elegant feel in interiors. The company has just opened its newest slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. The inspirational new flagship location in Long Island City is a combination showroom and slab gallery, showcasing the full assortment of tile and slab collections, as well as in-stock vanities, lighting, and plumbing fixtures. For more information about any Ann Sachs tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.annsachs.com. Okay, enough talk about the bleeding edge of this or the ultra-exclusive that. New York might move at the speed of now, but it has an old soul, too. One that appreciates strolls to the American wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a good book, and an appreciation for history and the finer things. 
And if all of that appeals to you, my next guest, Michael Diaz-Griffith, is someone you must know. As the executive director of the Design Leadership Network, aka the DLN, he knows the ins and outs of my world extremely well. While I hope he doesn't mind me calling him a dandy, and I mean that in the best way possible, he's had a beautiful career for someone so young, including his time working for antiques fairs and running the Sewn Foundation. But most importantly to me, the Alabama native's recent book that's much talked about, The New Antiquarians, is an inside look at a new generation of collectors that are inspired by the past. I caught up with Michael from his apartment in New York to talk about his adopted hometown, how young estates are living in New York today, and where the trendsetter sees all of it evolving from here, with a few suggestions, of course. So, Michael, I've known you for a long time, and I see you as kind of part of now the design cultural firmament here in New York City. But before you uh, start with uh, DLN, can you tell me a little bit about um, your career path leading up to to this role? Sure. I I do have a background that is firmly in design in the sense that I studied design in college and my parents built houses. Um, they built houses in rural Alabama. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, a massive real estate development corporation in the Northeast. It's a very humble business, but I was involved in it from a young age, designing millwork, bullying them into directing the sidewalks to the street instead of to the driveway trying to argue for deeper front porches and working shutters instead of false shutters, all those good things. And I did study design in school. But along the way, I was sort of seduced by the humanities. I studied literature and philosophy and architectural history and sort of ended up more on the art and architectural history side of, um, of the coin. And that led in a roundabout way to the antiques world and running antiques fairs and um, Museum Foundation, the Sohn Foundation, which is the American uh, fundraising arm of the Sohn Museum in London. So that's my path before the DLN. But the fun thing about this whole sort of sweep of career experiences is that they all involve design, they all involve the decorative arts, and they all involve people and, you know, cultivating relationships with brilliant people I admire, whether they're architects or interior designers or curators or craftspeople or antiques dealers. So uh, that's a little bit about me. And for those that are totally uninitiated, how do you describe the DLN to a total stranger? It's a professional association for architects, interior designers, and landscape specialists, but in particular for principles of design firms with those within those disciplines. And so we're an association that brings together different parts of the design world so that they can be in dialogue with each other. And at the same time, we're always speaking to the business context. So, you know, leadership training, business conversation with your peers who are also creative entrepreneurs who are trying to be brilliant designers, but also trying to run a firm. We facilitate education and conversation and a sort of network of mutual support around those dynamics. We're 17 years old, and uh, I'm really proud that the DLN has become, you know, a, a kind of firm pillar within the design world where people can uh, know that if they join, they'll have this web of mutual support and uh, 
kind of a context for thinking about the problem, the situation of being a creative entrepreneur who didn't go to business school, but is, you know, supposed to run a successful firm. You have to, you have to be successful in business in order to be a great designer. They go hand in hand. So we're, we're here to, to kind of speak to that context. And uh, we have over 530 members um, who are designers and 60 design industry partners who help us to convene programs and travel experiences and educational initiatives around those themes. And as someone who has the ear of a lot of different, um, you know, big wigs, as we can call them, uh, uh, what's a good New York phrase? I don't know. Muckety mucks. Uh, <laughs> Muckety mucks. Or as Fran Drescher said this week, fat, fat cats, cats I love in fat the cats. entertainment okay. industry. Although, don't tell okay. anyone I said that. Uh, <laughs> um, very nice influential people. As someone people. who knows a lot of fat cats, <laughs> um, what is the state of the sort of the design scene in New York today? I mean, now that we're coming out of this, we're sort of out of this post-pandemic moment, but we're still in kind of a a moment of change on so many different levels. And um, especially when you're talking about design, you're talking about, it's really a global yeah. industry. So you're talking about trade and other countries yeah. and what the French think about, you know, recessions possibly or whatever um so what's the word on the street what's the gossip in the in the back rooms of the dlm mm. <clears throat> well i'm sure that you're more expert in this subject than i dan but i think that the new york design scene is explosively vibrant um we could talk about you know the dynamic between Italian design businesses and their American arms or supply chain issues between Europe and America, etc. But in terms of a kind of gut check on what's happening, um, I think that the hospitality sector could not be more exciting. It's poised for continued growth. Obviously, we're coming out of a boom in the residential sector. That sector may be cooling, but there's still just so much that's exciting um, in it right now. And when I say exciting, I do, I do refer maybe obliquely to business opportunities. I think it's a great time to be in the design business, but I, on a more personal level, am excited and energized by the vibrancy of the design scene as a design scene. And I think that you're really good at looking at not just sort of industry considerations, but on this podcast, thinking about collectible design, thinking about the way that America and Europe influence each other, the influence of travel and the sort of wide exposure that we all have on, you know, more local design scenes and tastes. And I think that, you know, in this time of kind of ultimate plurality, where we could see anything online or travel to almost any destination within half a day, um, a place like New York just becomes kind of exponentially more dynamic all the time. If you want to see it, it's here. And there's a pretty great pressure on gallerists and makers and businesses to provide that experience or design service here. But I think that uh, while that may be experienced as a pressure on a business, for an onlooker or for consumer or, you know, for someone in one sector who's kind of 
enjoying what's happening in the other one. Like, you know, we all benefit from what's happening in hospitality because we are all guests in hotels. It's just, it's fun. It's energetic and fun. And I think that uh, we might not have been able to see that it would be so fun in March 2020, right? But through the boom that followed, uh, the lockdowns, and right up to today when there is still, you know, some fear about a cool down, it's, it's a time to be optimistic, I think. And is there a particular, can you walk us through um, maybe one particular New York project that you think is the most New York or the most one that might represent New York today the best? I think that one would have to be the apartment of Emily Bodie and Aaron Auchla, um, which is at the very front of the book. And, you know, in a more superficial way, it expresses the mood of what has been called Dime Square. That Tell people what that is. Lower East Side, Chinatown, um, arts, culture, and design scene that is in some ways the incubator for that sort of historicist taste that I described earlier as emergent in the design world. Um, but I have known Emily and Aaron since they really began their businesses. Um, she in fashion and he in design. And throughout their careers and the time that I've known them, they've been incredibly consistent in being utterly obsessed with old things and being completely influenced by them in everything they do. And I think that what is special about them is that they've built businesses, very, very successful businesses out of that interest. And they've been very influential um, because of that, because their businesses have been successful and they've reached a wide audience. But more importantly, they live with their collections in a way that feels very New York to me and that it complements the way they conduct their businesses. So for example, in the, in the sort of converted loft that Aaron substantially redesigned, um, there are pegs on the wall, not for hanging permanent installations of art, but so that Emily can hang the antique textiles that she collects and that she's inspired by in her work which is very seasonal because, you know, she's a fashion designer and that work is caught up in the fashion cycle. And so the pegs are there. They're beautiful. You know, the design is, I sort of describe it as like Chandigarh meets Cape Cod. There's, there's an element of mid-century design there um, that feels a lot like Chandigarh in India, the, the city designed by Corbusier. There's also a kind of feeling of a rural cottage in this apartment that's that's swirling above Manhattan and that reflects the the world that Emily inhabited as a child um, in Cape Cod on summer vacations but you know it's not precious and it's a part of their working lives you know the the apartment is sort of like a laboratory for ideas but those ideas are expressed as objects because it's about moving their things around they have a warehouse in Brooklyn, and so if something um, is is in the apartment today, maybe inspiring uh, a collection of Emily's, it could well be 
in the warehouse tomorrow and something from the warehouse might be brought into the apartment uh, to act as inspiration for whatever she's working on. And I just think it's such um, such a New York kind of dynamic that uh, in a way their apartment is like an atelier. Um, the people they work with come in and out all the time. And it's it's got the energy of a little bit of a collective, you know? There's a feeling that their collaborators um, are possibly there as frequently as their family members or their friends. And it's just a fun dynamic. And, and I think, you know, those who perceive collecting as a sort of precious activity or who perceive antiques and, and historic art as being delicate or as somehow needing to live under glass or in a vitrine uh, will be able to see in that chapter of the book a much more tactile and interactive way of living with things. And if you had one day to, uh, you know, to see something in New York to kind of soak up some antiquarian uh, good vibes, you know, where would you go? Would be to um, would it be to a museum? Would it be to a gallery? Would it be to a neighborhood? Where would you go in the city? You know, I think if someone is interested in that sort of downtown historicism that I was describing, they could go to Jacqueline Sullivan's gallery. They could go to Giancarlo Valle's new atelier, uh, which is beautiful. And there are examples of modern design there that are... Um, you know, a little ob oblique, a little bit unexpected, which is certainly reflective of the moment we're in where people are more interested in interwar design and things that maybe weren't as widely valued during uh, the first flush of mid-century mania that favored Italy and Denmark. Um, while you're downtown, you could also visit the gallery of Frank Levy, who's a great antiques dealer of Bernard and S. Dean Levy, and he's moved from the Upper East Side to Chelsea. So you could get a taste for kind of a, a very, very tenured antique dealer um, who has sort of embarked on a new life downtown, and you could also see what's happening with younger uh, people who are dealing in antiques and historic design. That would be one version of the day. And undeniably coming uptown to the Upper East Side would be another version of the day. And I think it's important to note that the Upper East Side, concomitant with this rise of interest in antiques, has also become much more popular with, uh, with Gen Z, I would say, <laughs> than, it, than it was with millennials. And so, you know, a big part of what I was doing at the Winter Show for years was trying to demonstrate to people that it's glamorous uptown. You know, come up from Chinatown. We've got martinis. And, you know, I would always make our photographers sort of like take close-ups of, you know, manicured hands loaded with diamonds, gripping martinis as if they were like, you know, a lifeline. And that world, which is so fascinating and kind of, you know, redolent of the novels of Donna Tartt and and um, and others, that's there and that's fun to look at. And I honestly think that people finally figured that out, which is why there's a line out of the door at Bimmelman's, <laughs> the Carlisle, and you can barely get in now. Um, I mean, I can get in because I know what to say to the guy, but you know, it's 
it's harder for a tourist to go there because there's a line of 20-somethings trying to get in, which we love. But while you're up there, you've just got to be a good citizen and go to the Met. I mean, I really do emphasize this because I think as New Yorkers, we actually take for granted that it's there and we don't go as frequently as we might. So that's important. And another really essential stop these days is the 72nd Street Gallery of Old Hope Antiques, which is one of the great dealers of American material. Um, They started in 1976 in the flush of the bicentennial. I'm very close to Pat Bell, one of the proprietors. And, you know, years ago, we were sitting around at the Winter Show and talking about how folk art dealers who had once been numerous in Manhattan were gone and none none were left uh, with physical locations in the city. So Pat, who is beginning to enjoy coming in from Pennsylvania to the city more and more just to see theater and his friends and to have great meals, saw this opportunity to come back to the city and establish what is now effectively the only folk art um, gallery in the city. And it's a great one. And it's uh, open on the weekends or by appointment during the weekdays. And it's where you can see the country's very, very best Americana, folk art, etc. And that's hugely exciting. And I've sent younger friends there who have walked away in love with material that I don't think they would have discovered if Old Hope had not taken a location in the city. So I encourage people to visit um, Pat as well, and then you could meander you know, to any other museum you're interested in from there. Thank you to all of our guests, Alexandra, Oren, Tal, David, and Michael, and especially to our sponsor, Anne Sachs, for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Taxi. Taxi.